This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Dr. Gwendolyn Zahara Simmons and Reverend Lucas Johnson. She is a civil rights veteran and an assistant professor of religion at the University of Florida. He serves on the International Committee of the International Fellowship of Reconciliation. I spoke with them on December 12, 2013 at NPR's Studio One in Washington, D.C., Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. Good evening. It is uh, wonderful to be at this fantastic space at National Public Radio tonight. I'm glad you're all here, and I'm so grateful um, that Gwendolyn Zahara Simmons, Dr. Gwendolyn Zahara Simmons, and Reverend Lucas Johnson came in. Lucas from Atlanta and Zohara from Florida. Um, I'll just give you a little sense of the evening. We are going to talk up here, speak up here among ourselves for about 50 minutes, and then we will at some point open it up for a conversation with you. I believe there are some microphones. I'm trusting. Yeah, there are people who know. <laughs> um, and then we'll, we'll end up back here. We'll, we'll have a, um, about a 90-minute conversation. Um, I know you all know to turn off your cell phones, so I don't even need to tell you. Um, So I think we'll just plunge right in. We have, uh, in 2013, entered into a stretch of years in which we will experience uh, 50th anniversaries of civil rights milestones. But as Dr. Simmons has written, there were many movements that led to that movement And there were multiple, sometimes competing, philosophies of change and movements uh, within it. But they coexisted, and we inherited all of these, but often without naming or examining them. So that's a little bit of what we want to do tonight. And we want to do it through the lens of two inspiring lives. Uh, Dr. Gwendolyn Zahara Simmons was raised in Memphis, Tennessee. She was born in 1944 and attended Spelman College in Atlanta. But she left before graduation, caught up in the unfolding events of that time, and in particular, she began to work with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was known by its acronym, SNCC, and known to her mother disparagingly as that SNCC organization. (laughs) (laughs) She became an organizer of the Mississippi Freedom Summer of 1964, where she got the nickname the Mississippi Amazon, and I think we'll get into that a little bit later. Today, she's an assistant professor of religion at the University of of Florida, and she's also a longtime student in the Islamic tradition of Sufism. Lucas Johnson was born in Germany in 1981. His father was in the army there. He grew up in coastal Georgia. He's worked with the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent Social Change, the Veterans of Hope Project, and the National Council of Elders. Lucas serves on the International Committee of the International Fellowship of Reconciliation and the board of the Baptist Peace Fellowship of North America. He lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and I first came to know about Lucas through Vincent Harding, who's a great veteran of the civil rights movement. He was running the Mennonite House in Atlanta when you came to college at Spelman with his wife. Um, He's a great mentor to me. And uh, Luke, and he described Lucas to me as as fine an embodiment there is in the contemporary world 
of someone, uh, uh, of that legacy of nonviolent resistance, bringing that legacy into 21st century realities. What we want to do tonight is talk about history, but talk about history as it resonates in the present, as it, as it continues to shape us, and talk about the present as it has been formed by people and events that came before us. And in that spirit, Lucas, and something I was reading that you wrote, you said that Vincent Harding um, says that if he wants to get to know a person, he asks them to tell him about their mother's mother. And I thought that's where we would start. Um, and Zahara, I'd like to start with you. Tell us about your mother's mother. And unfortunately, I never met my mother's mother because she died when my mother was a little girl. But I was raised by my father's mother, my grandmother. And that's the one who called it that snick. So <laughs> oh, that was her. <laughs> that was my yes, my paternal grandmother. Mm-hmm. And she had a profound influence on me. Uh, she was um, born in 1896, and she knew her grandmother, who had raised her, who had been born into slavery. So she knew directly from her grandmother about that period. And she taught me about her grandmother's life as an enslaved person. My grandmother had worked uh, as a sharecropper uh, in her early years. And at the time that I knew her and she was raising me, unlike a lot of African Americans, she told the stories of the hardships and uh, because she wanted me to know about it. And that's what I think was sort of shocking to me that she didn't like my being in the civil rights movement right. since she had... She was uh, afraid for you. Yes, of course. Yeah. No question about it. But uh, in spite of uh, a hard life, she was a very joyous person, uh, deeply religious, and certainly brought me up spending a lot of time in the church. And um, she was uh, a person who stood up for herself. And she was very proud uh, that she had registered to vote as soon as women could because black people could register to vote in Memphis, unlike Mm. in Mississippi and Mm. other places. And she was very serious about voting and um, walking up and down our little streets trying to get people to go out to vote. So I saw all of this, and uh, she was a real leader in our community. And she had a profound um, influence on my life. Lucas, your mother's mother. So I definitely wasn't prepared to talk about my grandmother, and I'm going to um, hope that I won't um, uh, cry, but my grandmother's in the hospital right now. So, um, But um, she, I think she's doing well. She, I think she's recovering, and so that's good. But um, my grandmother's name is Barbara Baker. And she uh, lives in uh, a small city not too far from Gainesville called Live Oak, Florida, which is my parents' hometown. Um, And uh, my grandmother uh, has been such a profound influence on me and and 
my development, my spiritual development. And um, she is a, a, a local leader in the AME uh, tradition in, in, the, in, the, in the city of Live Oak. And um, um, I think, you know, I, I, there's so much that I could say about her. Um, she, you know, I, I've, I've, I've written before about how um, I learned very important lessons about loving other people from my grandmother. I, she, um, I remember when I was a teenager and she was uh, ran off of the road by Klansmen um, at some point. I wasn't a teenager, I was younger. And um, I, I just remember my grandmother just handling things with such grace and wisdom and, um, and always responding to insult or violence with, um, with love. And so I, um, she's, she's an important part of my life. She raised eight children. Uh, I have lots of loving uncles and aunts and cousins and yeah. Okay. I don't know if I said we're we're going to turn this into radio probably after the first of the year. So I'm going to do a little bit of radio. <laughs> I'm Krista Tippett. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is on being today in conversation on civil rights and social change with Reverend Lucas Johnson and Dr. Gwendolyn Zahara Simmons. So Zahara, you tell a story about your first awakening. Mm-hmm. You described that joyful family you grew up in, mm-hmm. and you described your own childhood as joyful, and, and you, were, you were protected in mm-hmm. many ways yes, from injustices. And, uh, but you had this first awakening, a stormy day in Memphis. Yes. Would you tell that story? Certainly. Um, as you note, um, I was one, and I think this was true for all of my friends, Um, We were protected uh, in that Jim Crow uh, Memphis environment and kept within sort of the cocoon of the black community as much as possible. And um, because the church, the school, the community, you know, we all knew each other. There was a lot of love and support and I felt very loved and very supported at home, at school, and at church. But at the point that I had completed the uh, 11th grade, I knew I was hoping to go to college, and I knew how um, scarce funds were. So I really knew that I had to have a job. And I kept saying to my grandmother, uh, whose name is Rhoda Douglas, I really need to look for work. And she finally agreed that I could go out and look for work. So the I had started looking in the newspaper for jobs that I thought I would uh, have the skills for. And uh, I was cutting these little notices out in the paper called the Commercial Appeal, which is still the major paper there in Memphis. But what I don't think my grandmother realized was that these were jobs in the white community. And so I was... You said what you wanted was a nice job, (laughs) a good job. a nice job. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I knew how to type. I knew how to file. 
uh, I've thought, well, I should be able to get a job, you know, as a clerk or something like that. So into Midtown, I went with my little pieces of paper where they were looking for jobs, uh, you know, looking for people to fill jobs. And uh, when I went and basically was so rudely rebuffed on a couple of occasions, uh, I still did it for two or three days. On the third day, um, I was on my way back home and got caught in a torrential downpour with lots of thunder and lightning. And when I was growing up, you know, we were told to really be still when it's thundering and lightning, you know. Uh, being uh, my grandmother and all was so religious, they said, God is working. So, you know, you have to really respect that. Mm -hmm. So here I am out on the streets in the city, and it's pouring, it's thundering and lightning. And for the first time, I think I really became aware of what it meant to be black. And you've also said that you saw people, white people, inside yes. buildings looking, looking out, out at, at me as I was and being not soaked. inviting you in. Yeah, no, no inviting. And I didn't feel that I had anywhere to go. So I stood there waiting for the bus. And in the meantime, I was soaked, my shoes, you know, water gushing out of them and all. And by the time the bus came, I got on. It was the 31 Crosstown bus. And I was very angry. Uh, and I never recalled being angry before about the situation of being a black person in Memphis, Tennessee in 1961. Mm -hmm. And I sat down on the front seat of the bus, something I had never, ever thought of doing. And um, I felt defiant, um, and I, I don't know what I was thinking because, you know, in Memphis, as far as I knew, there had not been any attempt to desegregate the buses. So, of course, the driver looked at me and said, girl, what's wrong with you? You know, you should go to the back where you belong. And at that point, there weren't any white people on the bus, but there mm. were black people mm. in the back of the bus. Mm. And they became very agitated. And they were like, you know, motioning to me to come on back to the back, not make any trouble. And I just ignored them. And uh, the bus driver kept saying, I don't want any trouble out of you, girl. You need to get on to the back where you belong. And then when some white people got on, as was the custom, they could not sit down, even though there were seats, because they couldn't sit behind me. So they were annoyed beyond, and they kept telling him to make me get up so that they could sit down. And uh, as I, I think I probably wrote that I said, there was an angel looking out for me that day because for whatever reason, the driver didn't throw me off, which he could have physically. He didn't call the police. And the whites stood dripping wet, mad, and I sat there mad, and we <laughs> rode on. <laughs> So that you know, was my first defiant act. And you know, one thing that's interesting <laughs> about that story is we, we've all heard the story of Rosa Parks, yeah. as though there's this one woman. Yeah. But this drama was playing itself out on 
buses. And this was yeah. years after Rosa Parks, yeah. right? This was 61. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then you went to Spelman College. What year was that? 62? I went in 62. Okay. Yeah. Howard Zinn is the head of the yeah. history department. Right. You joined Ralph Abernathy's church. Yes. Where Martin Luther King Jr. preached. Yes. Yes. Uh, Vincent Harding was at the Mennonite House. Yes. And there was Stoughton Lynn also, who was a very important person, uh, and another advisor to SNCC and a person who's written a lot about the movement and is still with us, mm. I'm happy to say. So I always say it was such a setup, you know, because. <laughs> what was a setup? I mean, to get there at that time, and first of all, it's important to note that my grandmother had made me swear up and down that I wasn't going to get involved in the movement. And I said, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not. And I really meant it, you know, I really did. I didn't, you know, I was so glad to be going to college. It was a dream come true. And because uh, we were, you know, my folks were working class. Nobody had finished high school. So everybody was counting on me to make it, you know, to do it. And I wanted to. And so the uh, minister, uh, the pastor of my church was a Morehouse graduate. His wife was a Spelman graduate. Uh, the doctor, our, our doctor's daughter, had gone to Spelman. So, you know, these were the people we looked up to, you mm-hmm. know. And so for me to get a full scholarship to go to Spelman, I didn't have any intention of doing anything that was going to get me thrown out of there when I left. <laughs> so, I mean, and so to get there, and basically I was assigned to Stoughton Lynn's class. This mm. was an experimental class, mm. and I didn't know who he was, you know. It was the first time uh, having a white teacher, so that was somewhat of a surprise mm. to me, you know. And then, as you, you know, I was told to get myself into a church, as soon as I got there. <laughs> so, of course, there was this big, nice church right up the street, mm-hmm. which was the, you know, Reverend Abernathy's church. So I joined that church having no idea who he was. Right. And then, so the, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating <laughs> Committee is right around the corner. Okay. From- <laughs> and, and what I, I should have known this, but I, I found this clarity in your writing about the particular focus that SNCC had, that it was mm-hmm. focused on building organizations and concepts of leadership in mm-hmm. the Deep South. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, of course, at the point that I actually got involved, it was still heavily invested in the sit-ins. Yes. Because, you know, SNCC evolves into moving from being a student-based group growing out of the sit-in movements to then becoming a group that's borrowing into communities and, you know, living with the people and helping to develop the leadership potential. Yeah, you know, I mean, one thing I noticed in an essay you wrote about... uh, you know, about your story of those years. Yes. Is you told the story about getting ready for the 1964 Mississippi Freedom yes. Summer. And you didn't mention the March on Washington. Yeah. Which I think is interesting because, you know, now looking back, we have these mm-hmm. these events we single out. But, but you were doing something... Well, first of all, I certainly wanted to go. Okay. But my grandmother <laughs> wouldn't let me. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
So, you know, because I had been hanging around the SNCC office, I was really aware of all the preparations, uh, you know, working on uh, people working on John Lewis's speech, which was a group effort, by the way. (laughs) And uh, so I was so aware of it. But, you know, it happened in August. So I had gone home in June and trying to figure out how was I going to get to Washington, you know, because at that point, I was not letting on that I had gotten involved in the movement. So I couldn't tell my grandmother why I wanted to go. It was just like, everybody's going. And there were buses going from the various churches. That's always a very convincing reason for parents. Yes, exactly. Everybody's doing it, Mom. (laughs) But she said, no, it's going to be a lot of trouble up there, and you don't need to go. So I want to... Because I want to kind of move into the present, I want to fast forward a little mm-hmm. bit on the evolution of SNCC, mm-hmm. which was fairly dramatic. Yes. Um, and here's one way you wrote it very succinctly. SNCC evolved from a movement whose symbol was two hands, one black and one white, clasped together to one whose rallying cry became Black Power, and its logo became the Black Panther. Mm-hmm. And you were named the Mississippi Amazon, which in some ways... Um, in some ways, was a, a an expression of the personal evolution that you yes. that you made within within that evolution. Just tell us a little bit about that. Okay, now you're really kind of squishing time, okay. right? Yeah. Okay, but <laughs> we're squishing so, time. Yes, but we'll but keep we talking about to. what it means. I know, yeah. I know. But yeah. so you know, I get involved through sitting in at the various segregated facilities there in Atlanta. That's how it starts, right? Because that's how most of us got involved in SNCC. And, of course, to do that and be a student at Spelman meant you were slipping off the campus. You couldn't tell anybody there what you were up to uh, so that you could go on these demonstrations. So in terms of evolution... Um, there was this process that I was going through because I was getting drawn in more and more, but I also was terrified of, first of all, the school finding out, my grandmother finding out, and me being kicked out because they told us, if you get involved, we're going to send you home. Mm -hmm. You're going to lose your scholarship. So this was very frightening. But then at the same time, I'm hanging out with Vincent Harding and Rose at the Mennonite House. There's Howard Zinn constantly encouraging us to get involved to the demonstration. Stoughton Lynn's doing the same thing. So anyway, um, I somehow am able to hang on for two years. But during that period, the plans are being made for the Mississippi Freedom Summer. And I'm there listening whenever I can slip away and get to the SNCC office, trying to help out. And Stoughton Lynn was uh, working on the curriculum, and I was in his class, and he let me do that as a project, as a part of my history project, to Mm. work on the curriculum. For the Freedom School? For the Freedom School. So this is how this... And I'm like, oh, my God, I've got to go. I've got to go. And it's like... Are you kidding? Your grandmother is not going to let you go. One piece that I haven't mentioned is that all my life, she's telling me how bad Mississippi is. Right, right. You said, I mean, it's yeah. like to her, Mississippi was the hellhole. Yeah. So it was like, 
don't ever think of going there. So here we are talking about going into Mississippi to open up the state for for voter <laughs> voting. So I knew that was going to go over with her like a lead balloon. You know, what I mean, there was no way. So, of course, my plan had just been to not go home. Mm-hmm. And but telling other students, the word got back to the dean. The dean informs my folks that I've signed up to go to Mississippi and they better get there and get me. And that's exactly what they did, totally without me knowing they were coming. We had house mothers back in those days, 6 a.m. in the morning. The house mother knocks on my door and says, you have visitors. Well, that was impossible. 6 a.m. in the morning, well, the visitors were my grandmother, my mother, and my stepdad. And they walk in and say, we've come to take you home. Uh And I was like, oh, my God, because I'd made all these plans, you know. So anyway, I get taken home, and then I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get back. And Stoughton is involved. Jim Foreman at SNCC is involved. So they send me money. My grandmother intercepts the money, (laughs) tears it up, you know. So they're trying to get me you know, the fare to get on a Greyhound bus to get back to Atlanta. So then I have them to send a second uh, money order to a girlfriend's house in her name. I mean, it was like cloak and dagger to get to Mississippi. So anyway, I leave home crying because my grandmother, in her last effort to try and keep me there, says, if you leave, don't ever come back. So on that note, I leave on the Greyhound for Atlanta and basically cry all the way. And then there's Stoughton Lynn and his wife and children to meet me at the at the Greyhound mm-hmm. bus station. So yeah, Boy, these are the kinds of stories that haven't yeah, come down. Yeah, because most people assume that all of our parents were in for this. But yeah. her thing was, if you're going to Mississippi, you're coming back in a coffin. So it's like, to her, it was... This was a death sentence. Mm-hmm. And Tell me about that, um, that transition to black power, that, that evolution of your thinking. I mean, even in the name of you know, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, there was a change in the understanding of what it was going to take. Well, again, now, SNCC and me with it, go, we go through quite a bit there in Mississippi. Yeah. So, you know, first you've got the three Mississippi workers who are killed. Yeah. Um, and I go for the summer and wind up staying almost two years in Laurel, Mississippi, because the work, you know, I just thought I was going to be there the rest of my life, basically, because you get committed to the people that you're working with. But... So we do the Mississippi Freedom Summer. Many people stay on after, black and white, Mm -hmm. stay on to work full-time in Mississippi and other SNCC uh, venues. Then the big thing, I think, that was a turning point for many of us was when the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party delegation went to the uh, Democratic Convention, which was held in Atlantic City. This is 1964. And we had put all of our effort into organizing the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, holding mock elections across the state, electing the delegates, 
And we felt sure that they were going to be seated because they had been democratically elected. It was racially mixed group of delegates, etc. And then the Democratic Party sells us out at the convention. I mean, we were naive to have thought that our delegation would be seated because we didn't understand how politics worked. So we didn't understand that for President Johnson, he was trying to hold on to the Dixiecrats across the South. And so to have seated the Mississippi delegation, he thought, would meant he would have lost the South. Mm-hmm. We didn't understand politics, but it really hurt us so deeply because we were believing that we had done the right thing. And because you've done the right thing, the Democratic Party is going to do the right thing. So I think for a lot of us, and I know for myself, this began to um, create a change in thinking as to, well, wait a minute, what are we really up against here? Because like most Americans, I know I didn't know the history. You know, I didn't know anything about Reconstruction, for example, mm-hmm. right. and how we were sold out then, you know, in 1871. So there's all this history that if you're a young movement person, you don't know, you know. And this began changing uh, a lot of us, myself included. And then you've got the Malcolm X phenomenon. Right. Uh, that impacts on a lot of us. So, um, yeah, so Luke, let's keep, we'll, yeah, yes. no, we'll keep, we'll keep we'll drawing keep, this out. Right. Let's pull Lucas in because one thing that I know um, you t- I heard from you when I first met you is that you grew up, you, one of the things you said is that you probably heard Martin Luther King Jr. preach at around the same age that your parents had heard him, but, but they heard him live and you mm-hmm. heard him as history. Mm-hmm. And that you... You got a bunch of mixed messages about him and about the legacy of that time. Um, well, I mean, it's it's strange. Um, I mean, I feel like it, it's like I'm, I'm st- I, like I'm still in Mississippi with Zahara right now. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm I know we to, could stay there all night. Um, um, but I. Um, so yeah, so so my my parents, um, you know, I I grew up with like if there was downtime in the house at some point, there would be recordings of Dr. King's sermons that were played, or if we were driving on long road trips, they would play Dr. King Dr. King's sermons, and so I, it's like I grew up with his voice and Aretha Franklin, and and you know, I, like I, in some and it, it, it's strange because I I probably did grow up in some ways like I was around in in uh, the sixties in some and just in, in that little way. But um but yeah, but it, it is interesting because I think that w- in my generation um there were these the dominant image of the way people would talk about um Dr. King and Malcolm X was a very oversimplified um sort of paradigm and 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 it was very, I think, problematic. I mean, I, I, Dr. King was, many people would think of him as this, as, you know, the, the loved by white people and not 
a true champion for the cause and Malcolm X was the epitome of black masculinity and and he was the one to really aspire to and I mean these were not the messages from my parents but these were the messages from my you know growing up in 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 the in the in the social context and in the 80s and in 90s. the 80s yeah, yeah and and in the 90s and so um yeah that so um you and I were actually together at a at a gathering called Wild Goose Festival, and mm-hmm. there was a wide generational mm-hmm. range. And I came to an event you did on nonviolence, nonviolent resistance, and and there was a young man, maybe about your age, doing fabulous things in the world. And and he talked about how for him, uh, and and I think many people would share this. Uh, for him, the the idea of nonviolence. Um, it sounds passive mm-hmm. and weak and maybe even irresponsible mm-hmm. right? that maybe nonviolence would allow injustice. And I, 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 I you know, I, I think you, you still come across that. So talk about how you, how you talk about what nonviolence is because yeah, it's, it, that's one of those simplified things. I mean, what I've come to understand from you and from John Lewis and others is it's, it's not an absence, but a presence. Right. I think there's this strange, I mean, you know, uh, there's a strange sense that nonviolence means doing nothing um, in the face of injustice, right? And I, and I, I don't know, I, I haven't begun to really um, uh, dissect where that comes from, but, but it's certainly not the legacy of Dr. King. It's certainly not the legacy of of SNCC or, or, or any of the, or, or any of the examples that we have, um, for, from the nonviolent activists and leaders in the, of the black freedom struggle. Um, you know, I, I describe, you know, I talk specifically about the tradition of nonviolence that I'm in you know, or mm-hmm. that I see myself in, mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of people, when they, when they describe, it, it's like, I don't know who they're arguing with, right? I don't know who, you know, what examples are they complaining about, so to speak, when, when people can conf- uh, talk about or describe nonviolence in a way that um, implies that it means to do nothing. And so I, part of me wants to say, well, whose nonviolence are you describing? Um, because it's not, it's, you know, it's not the tradition that I'm in. Um, it, and the tradition that you're in, I, I, I also experience you to see your lineage as even bigger and longer than the civil rights movement. Yeah. Um, Fellowship so, of Reconciliation, Gandhi. Right, um, right. So, I mean, I, so oftentimes um, I think about um, what A.J. Musty, who was one of the FOR's early leaders in the, um, um, FOR was founded in around 1914, and and Musty was a um, was a phenomenal um, pacifist. Um, and he talked about Musty would talk about a revolutionary pacifism, right? Uh, that was his that was his expression, and that was his way of describing this notion of direct engagement and this responsibility to um, uh, respond. Uh, to what we're having. It doesn't pacifism was not about neutrality while injustice was, was around you, but it was about uh, finding the courage to respond in love. Um, 
And I think that uh, it begins with a commitment to love and, and that, you know, I'm also a part of that tradition that sees that as, um, I describe it as a spiritual discipline, right? As mm-hmm. something that requires a lot of internal work um, in order to see others as, as, as opponents, but not enemies to see others as um, a part of the transform the social transformation that you're mm. seeking to create. And so, you know, my, the, the people that I've learned the most from in, in, in FOR's tradition include AJ Musty and Howard Thurman and Vincent Harding and, and, and others. Um, the language of the beloved community as the goal was so central, uh, to Dr. King and certainly the early movement. Um, I don't really feel like that's come down to us or, or what that means, you know, and I think that certainly gets lost when we think about the civil rights movement as a political movement, you know, even just a social movement, because there was this deep spiritual heart to it, um, I wonder, but, but, you know, yeah. So I wonder what, how did the black power movement take up that image or wrestle with it or work with it? You know, where, Mm -hmm. where did, what, where did this core value of love go or how did that evolve? Well, I think that, it's important to um, see that this this evolution, you know, um, I teach the civil rights movement and we end up on the black power era and we, you know, we look at the second set of the eyes on the prize that focus on Stokely Carmichael, Rap Brown, you know, that whole thing. But, you know, it's that... Uh, the story is told, and there, I think it's quite true, even though I wasn't out there on the continuation of the Meredith March. And that is the march where Stokely Carmichael, you know, after having been arrested, stands on a flatbed truck and says, you know, I've been arrested 68 times, and I'm not going to be arrested anymore uh, what is it that we need? We need black power. And, you know, the crowd just goes, erupts. So, you know, and of course, this whole period has been so demonized and uh, misunderstood historically. And often people say, you know, black power killed the civil rights movement and all of that. But it was an evolution. You know, it's um, people don't know that a delegation of SNCC people went to Africa after the Mississippi Summer Project. And again, they're smarting after what has happened in um, in Atlantic City. And then they go to Africa and they visit Guinea, they visit Ghana, you know, they meet Nkrumah, they meet Sikitoure. They see... Uh, what has happened in that part of Africa after colonialism, they see power. These people are now exercising power. And uh, more and more, the understanding became that this is more than a moral issue. 
This is more than uh, getting white Americans to love us. Mm -hmm. This is about us sharing power. And so while it was stated, you know, flamboyantly, arrogantly, and all of that, it really was a coming to some understanding about how this country operates and that groups have to exercise power in order to uh, get some of the things that we were trying to get for people. And so, you know, you have the uh, eruptions in the north and on the west coast. And so we're beginning to understand that it's even when you have the right to vote, because people in Chicago could vote, Detroit, L.A., you know, but they were living in horrible conditions. They, you know, the job situation was horrible. So then we really were going through this period of saying, wait a minute, what is it that we are trying to do here? The South is one thing, but, you know, even Dr. King said, you know, it's one thing to be able to go to a restaurant, but if you don't have any money to buy that hamburger or more, you know, to sit down and have a nice full-course dinner, it really doesn't matter. And this tension is still with us, right? Absolutely. Yeah, well, I mean, I it is, it is. And and I was, I mean, I think one of the things that, I mean, and I know that was, that was, that was a segue to the present to talk about what's still with us, but I'm still thinking, I'm still thinking about the, the, the way that people seem not to uh, deeply wrestle and understand with the, 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 the po- the positive identity formation that the black power movement also mm-hmm. represented mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and and to so say some more about that as you understand it well i mean i i think i mean i'm a i i benefit from it i'm mm-hmm. i i'm you know the, this you know everything from mm-hmm. this revolution of consciousness that that enabled african americans one to imagine Africa as as something that wasn't inherently negative, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and to reclaim sort of a sense of Afro descendancy that 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 they could be proud of. E- and that even meant the fact something. that we now use the language of African American, right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. That you know, I mean, to 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 no longer feel like they needed to be subservient subservient to mm-hmm. uh, white people or white interests, or or and, and to have a, a, an internal sense of pride. Mm-hmm that was not about a political achievement, right? That was, that was rooted in something much deeper. And I think that if we don't understand that, then we, ha- we run the risk of mm-hmm. oversimplifying what you know, the, the black power movement was about. Mm-hmm. In, in, in the face of, of, of the uh, defeats of Missif- Mississippi Freedom Summer, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, and Zahara, you have to tell me and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I see part of what, the black power movement that came out of that experience as representing was, was a, um, an opportunity to root our struggle in something beyond the, the, uh, a political victory. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Is that, I mean, well, that's, that's a good point. And I, I, I think that, um, it, you know, again, we're talking over two or three years <laughs> that this process of moving from the 1964 uh, defeat 
if you will, at the convention. And um, uh, Stokely Carmichael sang Black Power. Now, in the interim, there's been all this discussion going on within the organization. Uh, you know, they come back from Africa. They're t- they're very impressed with, you know, here these people are running their countries, you know. And like you say, there is a pride in, in Africa. You know, I, I tell my students all the time, and they fall out laughing. I said, you know, when I was growing up, when you called a black person an African, you you might get hit in the nose. It, it wasn't. I it mean, was, this, it was true this with was me up nobody. Too. You know, Africa. I'm no African. Get out of here. Don't call me that. I mean, so there was, you know, I grew up in where the only movies that I saw was Tarzan, remember? And and Cheetah had more sense and, than the Africans. So we have to remember what was going on. Yeah, and I mean, isn't it fascinating denigration that, of black people. that our, the lang- this language that we now use all the time carries such weight? Yeah. And we don't we don't know that. Yes. So in, and as as uh, uh, Lucas is saying. I mean, none of us would have thought of wearing our hair in the natural state. I mean, you know, we had a whole lot to deal with because we're talking about uh, a culture that has denigrated black people, made us ashamed of everything. Your hair, the shape of your nose, the size of your lips. I mean, everything you hate because you've been taught to hate it. And this is why Malcolm was so amazing, you know, because he said that to us. And I just, if you know, want to say that in Laurel, Mississippi, you know, we had built uh, with the community, had taken this boarded up building and built this beautiful center. And the Klan firebombed it and it was burned down. I mean, the, they wouldn't, the fire department wouldn't even put the fire out. Okay, so that's our first center. Then we have a second center, and I'm going somewhere with this. We have a second <laughs> center, and it's in a much smaller space, but it's the only thing we can rent because everybody's afraid of us. You know, the movement people, if you rent them property, it's going to be firebombed. It's going to be burned down. So this property had a people living right next door in a duplex. So we kind of thought, well, surely they won't come and firebomb this because somebody could die. Well, they firebombed it. Well, anyway, we were able to get save that. Now, I'm sitting in this partially burned out uh, place, and that's nobody would rent us anything else. And the mail comes. In the mail is a record of Malcolm X. I'd never heard of Malcolm. And we have a little record player there, and I put the record player, uh, put the record on. And Malcolm X is talking about the ballot of the bullet. And I've never heard anything like this. I am totally mesmerized. I'm scared to even listen to it. It's so incendiary, you know, compared to anything else I know. But I'm so struck by it. So this is another thing that you have to know is going on in other parts of the country. That people, And so this also is seeping down into the South. So there's so much happening. 
But the consciousness raising that comes out of this and this whole notion of we need power, this is what we don't have, is such a part of this. And I think in many ways it was not done well. I think a lot of, you know, what came out of Rap Brown's mouth, we're going to burn it down. I mean, it was unfortunate, you know. But it was heated rhetoric and basically nobody really meant to do that. But nonetheless... It was said, and it was unfortunate because it frightened people. And, you know, then we have all this history to deal with without an understanding of what this comes out of and Mm -hmm. what it represents. An evolution of a people coming to a consciousness of who they are and a pride in who they are. Mm -hmm. And and can I, I mean, I feel like one of the other points related to that is that I feel like when people describe um, Malcolm X or when people describe uh, the the Black Panther Party, they often describe what the Panthers and, and Brother Malcolm were saying that they were willing to do as if it was what they preferred to do, right? I mean, there was a, they were saying we were willing to be violent, right? right? We were willing right. to respond, you know, if we had to. But, 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 but that's, that's very different than saying we prefer violence, Right. And I feel like that's another point that gets, I don't know, somewhere in the 80s and 90s got distorted or lost Mm -hmm. or something happened. Um, But I feel like there's a there's a popular conception of 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 these movements and these and these these folks as more violent than they were than they were actually were. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's that's another problematic here. So there's something interesting I hear. You know, Lucas, so Zahara, you're older, but you mm-hmm. are part of this, this the, just the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And you kind of identify with this centuries-old movement that carries many of these values, mm-hmm. um, the values of nonviolence uh, and social transformation. Um, before the civil rights movement and into it and beyond it, um, and I kind of, and now you are bringing this even into places like Congo and Palestine today, and 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 representing that in this country where where we are now, um, and I, I kind of hear you saying that you integrate um, all of this, uh, including that willingness, that that the, the, the this memory of of that place that the movement got to. Um, into, I mean, so that so that so that the, so that the the philosophy of nonviolence itself has evolved. Well, I mean, I mean, first, first, I have to say that um, Palestine and the Congo they have their own traditions and histories of nonviolence, mm-hmm, right? So mm-hmm. I, I, I'm often learning more than I'm bringing anything. Um, um, I. I feel I, I, I think that the, that nonviolence is always, um, you know, I think it's interesting that Dr. King's favorite scholar was Hegel, right? Our favorite philosopher was Hegel, right? And 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 there's all this, uh, you know, central to uh, Dr. King's philosophy was uh, Hegelian dialectic, right? And and this this the, you know the the this tension thesis antithesis exactly, synthesis i remember exactly, that right yeah. you know so so you know that's you know dr king talks about a tough mind and a tender heart right um and i feel like um uh 
there are lots of tensions within within nonviolence, right? As a as a uh, as a as a commitment, as a as a way of working out the struggle for for justice. There as are a lots way of, of being rather than just withholding. Exactly, yes. exactly. As a as a way of being, um, there are lots of tensions within it, and um, yeah, those tensions include a tension between the struggle for justice and the commitment to love, right? Um, they they include a tension between. Um, recognizing a tremendous amount of violence being acted upon someone and and the desire to sort of stop that violence and the willingness to, or, the, or the the interest in stopping that violence even while loving the perpetrators of that right. violence so right. there's there's, right. there's there's a lot of tensions within it um is is that get to mm-hmm. what you're yeah yeah, yeah. It can't be wrapped up neatly in a bow. No, no, no. And it's a lot. I mean, and it's hard, right? And I, I feel like there's, there seems to be this culture. I think sometimes, um, in some places that I've experienced within the peace movement, particularly, of not wrestling deeply, right, with, with fear, with 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 concerns, with justice, with. Um, and and I don't think that that's, I think we have a responsibility, we have an obligation to wrestle more deeply than we sometimes do. Mm-hmm. I think I want to open this up to your two questions, see what's on your minds. Um, um, do we have, how does this work? We have, I can't see. I can't see either. No. <laughs> Are there microphones? There will be a microphone. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with Reverend Lucas Johnson and Dr. Gwendolyn Zohara Simmons on civil rights and social change. Hello, my name is Michael Wilker, and um, thank you both for being here tonight, and thank you, Krista Tippett, for interviewing folks. Um, When we um, hear stories about movements, and especially movements for liberation, we try to put everybody into the same basket. And there's an incredible amount of pressure to conform in that from the white power structure outside, they're all the same inside. And I'm wondering about how a few times I've heard stories of people within the movements trying to hold each other accountable and pushing and agitating one another within the movement. I learned just a little bit this summer about Fred Shuttlesworth and his relationship with Martin Luther King Jr. And that the story that I heard was Fred Shuttlesworth kind of pushed Reverend Dr. King to to confront a little bit more strongly in Birmingham. And um, I'm wondering if you could tell a little bit of stories about what that's like to try to confront and agitate within the movement to, to move to a new spot, but still be able to hold one another in some sense of, we're going to do this together. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. curious about that part of, of the story. I mean, when, when I think of SNCC, um, you know, you've described exactly what went on 24-7 almost. I mean, there was a constant um, 
struggle within, and of course I know much more about that organization than any other, but I certainly was also involved in Atlanta with struggles between SNCC and Dr. King. Um, So, you know, developing the strategies, deciding what it was you were going to do, not going to do, and that included everything uh, to are you going to get arrested, are you going to stay in and not take bail versus taking bail. Uh, You know, one of the um, things that I think has been written about uh, in terms of the SNCC-SCLC differences often had to do with styles of organizing. Uh, And I don't know if I'm answering some of your questions, but after SNCC moved from being mainly a student-based group focused on desegregation and moved to be a group organizing in communities where you actually lived for years, sometimes people are still there where they went back in the 60s, they haven't left to this day, uh, versus sort of the way SCLC did it. You know, you come in, it's very high visibility uh, march, and people go to jail. And often there was tension between the two organizations over this because, of course, the minute, you know, Dr. King would come, here comes the media. And uh, the members of his entourage were getting the attention. And so often the SNCC people who were there uh, day in and day out, you know, didn't like this and wanted the local people to get the attention. So there was always tension, yet uh, an effort to not let the movement come apart at the seams. I mean, this was just a part of, of the operations of carrying a movement forward under the kinds of stresses and uh, the violence being pitted against by the state as well as by the, you know, groups like the Klan and others. So tension was, uh, internal tension was a big part of it. Uh, it's a privilege to hear you. I'm David Hirsch, and I have, um, I'd like to paraphrase uh, Vincent Harding in the form of a, of a question. Uh, it's clear that, that, um, you have been willing to hear the call, and you are watering the seed of the trees of American life. It, it, it clearly grows in your own hearts. And I wonder if you could, if you could articulate um, the, the one America that you now dream and, and hope for. Is that too cool? Hmm? Lucas, you want to... <laughs> Um, like that, that also gets at what is what is the movement now? Where where are we now? Oh man! You know, I I I think about um, you know, Krista, when you began, you described sort of all the anniversaries that we've experienced, um, and um, and they've been cause for a lot of reflection um, for me. I mean, I I'm. You know, I I live benefiting from the work that Sahara and many others did, um, and you know, I fifty years ago, or 
I mean, so part of part of what I've been able to experience today, I grew up in an integrated community. I, I grew up with friends from um, from well, one in the U.S. Army. You have this very you oftentimes have a a beautifully integrated um, context um, with white kids and black kids and Puerto Rican kids and Korean kids. And that was my, that was a part of my life. But then there was also that part of my life where I was living in Southeast Georgia. And, um, and, you know, I remember being confronted early on by the N word and so on and so forth. What was different was that, that the, the, the power behind those insults was not the same as what you had to experience, Ohara. And and those people that called me that in the third grade became my friends by the seventh grade. <laughs> and uh, we loved each other and and we were able to become friends and some of those folks I'm still friends with, right? Um, but that didn't stop Renisha McBride from being shot and it didn't stop Jordan Davis from being shot or... Trayvon Martin or, you know, um, I, I hope that what we're working towards and the vision for the, the United States that has not yet been, um, is one where certainly those things don't happen and certainly our incarceration rate um, wouldn't be what it is. And, um, it's hard to even see, um, what that America would look like. If it's hard to even imagine, I, I, I know it when I experience it, you know, in interactions and conversations and relationships. Um, and I'm grateful for it. Um, but to try to describe it in, in some big way is still hard for me. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, in some ways, maybe I'm working towards something that I can't quite imagine, but I, mm-hmm. I know it when I see it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, there's an interesting question that I feel has been, you want to say, do you want to, I speak? wanted to speak to that. Okay. I mean, I, there's some things that I certainly would like to see, um, in the, and Lucas has certainly mentioned some of them. I'd like to see an America with a uh, a very different um, uh, economic structure. Uh, I would like, by that I mean, I would like for um, workers to, um, across the board, uh, have a living wage, and I would think that would probably started something at least around $15 an hour. Uh, I'd like for there to be protections for workers. Um, and some of you probably have been hearing the stories about people who are working in these warehouses, you know, where Amazon and Apple and all. I mean, when I read how these people are being treated uh, in these places, it makes me think of folk who had to pick cotton. I mean, it's it's just brutal. So there should be, you know, some real changes. I'd like to see a country where uh, we didn't have all these guns and people didn't think they had the right 
to own all these guns. And uh, so there are some very specific things mm-hmm. that I would like to see in a changed America. You know, there's a question that arises, and I, I feel like it's it's been around the edges of some of the things you've both been saying about how social change happens now. You know, because I, it's also hard to imagine in this world we inhabit um, the kind of focus on a leader like Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela. Um, uh, it's hard to imagine, you know, that pe- people, that the kind of mass movement, even, I don't know, Lucas, I know you wrote at some point that you, could, you sometimes felt envious of the clarity of focus that the, mm-hmm. that the civil rights uh, activists and leaders had in the 60s. But, you know, when you tell the real story beneath the surface, it was very complicated. <laughs> but I don't think a movement is going to work that way now. And I, I wonder if the two of you, um, you know, what you see happening, and perhaps specifically with regard to the kinds of things you, you've talked about you'd like to see in this America that we hope is evolving. How does change happen now, or what... What adaptations do you see? I mean, I, I, I see... So, I, I mean, I, I see... Um, I mean, one of the things about the, 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 what we call the civil rights movement that I think was so phenomenal is that um, folks weren't afraid to experiment, right? Mm-hmm. And... And really, I think that what, what, we, what you're describing, all of that experimentation. Yeah, I mean, yes. there was lots of experimentation. And I feel like we, we're in a fascinating time right now. I feel like there, I do see those, ex, those experiments, so to speak. I do see pockets of, um, of experimentation or pockets of resistance to, to uh, unjust uh, systems or, or dehumanizing aspects of American life. I, I think that, um, that it's probably going to be a lot more in terms of, in terms of what a new movement would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, it will probably necessarily be a little bit more diffuse, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I think that, that it's, it's because there's, I mean, I, there's so much to be done. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much to be done yeah. um, that that uh, and you know and I and and my elders Ohara included ten I, for me they I've often heard y- use other language to describe the civil rights movement right the movement for the expansion of American democracy mm-hmm. or the Southern Freedom Movement you know, these are two that I know that uh, Dr Harding uses at times and I and I think that the importance in and that language is that it it describes a struggle that that is ongoing mm-hmm. um, and that is much bigger than 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 a particular political effort because I think that there's a there's an innate humanness about our problems and our struggle to address them um, that we have to be working at and 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 be committed to overcoming and I uh, yeah let's take another question. Hi, my name is Fatima Keshavars, and um, I think one thing that came out of the conversations is, as Krista pointed out, that this movement has been deeply spiritual. 
And I also hear that Dr. Zaha Simmons has a Sufi background. Um, and of course, for the Sufis, there's a struggle between not surrendering to resistance, even subversion at the same time, completely uh, acceptance and love. There's tension there. I wonder yeah. if when that came for you, was that a, in an early stage or did it play? Did your Sufi practice play any role in your um, role in the movement or in your own personal growth, if you, if you care to comment on that. Thank you. Let's say Fatima Keshavarz is a very renowned um, scholar of Rumi. Oh, okay. And, um, wow. Yeah, it's such an interesting question. And, uh, you know, and I, I was intrigued to hear that you were Sufi also because um, we know about the Nation of Islam, although that's actually such an interesting story. The Nation of Islam evolved so much, and I don't feel like that story came down. But, yeah, yeah this question of Sufism and mm-hmm. how that played into your evolution. Well, first of all, I um, uh, met a Sufi master or teacher uh, in 1971, so it was after uh, I had become a civil rights, human rights activist. And um, interestingly, I was introduced, first of all, you know, I grew up as a Baptist in a very, very Baptist home, and all my family, you know. You were just uh, trouble. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> so, but even early on, I had questions that I now understand uh, that were always there, you know, about who are we? Why are we really here? What is this all about? And that was before the movement thing. I mean, this started, you know, as an early teenager because now thinking about it, I saw a lot of poverty and suffering. And I was like, you know, in church, I'm hearing how good God is and, you know, all of this. And I'm like, well, why is God letting this happen? You know, what is what is really going on here? So those questions had been a part of me for a long time. But then in 1971, I meet um, a person. Um, I learn about a person who... Uh, his student was studying for a Ph.D. at the University of Pennsylvania, and he needed uh, some Americans to help him bring his Sufi master to the United States, Sheikh Bawa Mahayadeen. And when I heard about this teacher, I thought, hmm, that's what I've been looking for, somebody who had some insights into the, you know, these things that are bothering me and have been for so many years. So in very rapid order, we were able to get him a visa, and he was able to come to the United States. Now, once he came and I started going and listening to him and all, I thought, oh, my, if I'm going to embark on this Sufi path, this journey, the inward journey, does it mean I have to give up the outward struggle? And that was a big problem for me. And I can say I really grappled with it for quite a while. I mean, to, to the point of tears and, and because the movement and the struggle was such a part of my life that I said, I can't give this up for anything. But on the other hand, 
what he was teaching me about the soul and why we really had come was also very appealing. So there's that tension that exists still to this day after all these years. I'm still grappling with those two things. Another question? Hi. I work in the southwest neighborhood of D.C., and um, one of the uh, many things that I do is that I work with children after school. And the context that I see the children coming from is, in many cases, violent in various ways. There's um, domestic violence. There's gang activity in the neighborhood. And there's also just that their experience in a lot of ways in school and in life is sort of punitive. Like there's this kind of oppressive testing and there's this sense of the the school to prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. And the kids then sort of play that out in their relationships with each other. And I see teen moms possibly replicating the parenting that they were given. Mm -hmm. And it's this kind of harsh approach. And I just wonder what is there what's the ap- the practical application of the nonviolent spirit in that situation and is there anything that someone like me who feels deeply unqualified and has been told to kind of you know stick to the stick to the status quo do your job in the narrowest sense mm-hmm can do. And then the other aspect of that that struck me, Dr. Simmons, when you were speaking, is that those of us in, in my generation, maybe Lucas's generation, have seen kind of the civil rights movement as having this kind of halo around it. But when you describe being a young student, I suspect to maybe that generation it looked like an awful lot of rebellion and fuss and trouble. Mm-hmm. And how do we channel what sometimes looks like to the establishment of our generation as like the, the rebellion and fuss and trouble of the kids coming up into this sort of nonviolent social justice paradigm? Wow, that's, that's a hard question. Uh, and I mean, I, I, I really feel where your question is coming from because... It's certainly something that I am deeply troubled by, deeply. Um, And, you know, I think on the individual level, um, what we can do and certainly what um, I try to do when I'm around young people, first of all, is love them. Um, and let them know that I am and you are in their corner. Um, And to let them know that they can come to you. And even though you might not be able to change the uh, actual, uh, you know, structures in which they are living, for them to know that you love them and that you care for them uh, is very, very important. 
Um, and I think that's what we as individuals can do. But we also have to have structural changes. And this is this is where I can never give up, and I think that's because of having come through the movement, having been born in the Jim Crow South. And um, Lucas and I were talking about this last night. How do you come from, you know, 1964 Mississippi to where we are now? And I'm not in any way Pollyannish about where we are now. We have a lot of problems. But I never thought I would live to see the day that there would be a black man in the White House. I mean, that to me was absolutely impossible. So, you know, there are changes, even though there are so many problems still. So I can never give up that on the, on the idea that we, the people, can organize and bring change. That I just, I know we can because we did it. And because we did it, we can continue to do it. But at the individual level, we have to give them love so that that becomes somewhat of a balm for the bruises, for the pains that they are suffering. And it's very little, but I think it does help while we are building the structural changes, the institutions that we must build to change uh, the reality for these children. Lucas, I'm not letting you off the hook. <laughs> oh, man, I was like, oh. <laughs> um, Well, uh, the first thing I want to say is that um, you, uh, you called yourself not qualified or, or not able, and that's not true. Um, the second thing is I was reflecting on... on um, yeah, you you describe several different layers of the problem. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have to recognize that we can't always address all the layers at the same time. And we have to focus on what we can do. Um, and uh, I think, you know, I, I, I do believe that sometimes, unfortunately, our, our schools are more more like traps than 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 centers of education and learning and um but i think that every little effort from every teacher from every person that that can give that effort will help those children along will help your students along and i'm grateful for teachers and and particularly those teachers in my life who did that mm-hmm. um and so that, that, that was... There is something very important about the perspective that's provided. I mean, this, this sense that, that the questioner had, that I think so many of us have, of the insurmountability of the structural problems and this feeling of not being qualified. What you, you know, and then we look back at this monolithic, successful, right? But, I mean, you describe the absolute complexity and the insurmountability of the structural problems was arguably 
at least as great as it is now. Mm-hmm. And there's something helpful just about remembering that. Mm-hmm. That maybe also gets lost when we celebrate the milestones, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we celebrate mm-hmm. the accomplishment. Mm-hmm. I think we just have time for one more question. Thank you so much. My name is Lisa Sharon Harper. I am a Senior Director of Mobilizing at Sojourners. And we just came from the Fast for Families on the National Mall today. It was an immigration fast um, where I fasted and several other people did. And that is a, a perfect example of a nonviolent uh, uh, action for justice in today's world. And I just, so with that as my context, I, I have a few thoughts and then I have two questions. And the first thought has to go back to that, our earlier conversation about black power and the rise of black power. I've recently been watching, I'm sure like most of America, uh, Henry Louis Gates, uh, the African-Americans, Many Rivers to Cross. Mm -hmm. And he does such an amazing job of laying out the historical landscape that led to that moment in the Meredith March, Mm -hmm. the second second enactment of it. And the, the moment where Stokely Carmichael actually talked about black power. And recently in our history, we have three films that I think really do a beautiful job and a powerful job of explaining the African-American male's experience in America and why that call for black power would actually rise out of the soul of black men. Um, 12 Years a Slave, The Butler, and Fruitvale Station, all three of which you just see immense, immense amounts of control that are put on black men in particular, but also black women's bodies uh, in, in the course of history. So if we haven't seen those three movies, you got to see them, especially before Oscar time. Hello. Um, <laughs> but, but with that said, um, as a faith leader, I've been thinking a lot lately about dominion and about scripture and Genesis and the reality that as human beings, we are all called to exercise dominion. And yet Africans in America have had have been subjugated and not been allowed to exercise dominion. And so what is the impact of that on our souls, on the image of God in us? It diminishes because the dominion has been diminished. Now, flash forward to today, and we have the Voting Rights Act being chopped um, with the Section 4 being diminished. We have uh, uh, the Stand Your Ground and Stop and Frisk. We have mass incarceration. And we, we also have now the decoupling of food stamps from, uh, from the Farm Bill. I think all of which are ways to control, to go back to controlling African descendant people. So here's my question, two questions. The question is, in today's context, where we're seeing a backlash of white power after the rise of a black president, what do we do? What, what can nonviolent, the nonviolent strategy of the 60s teach us about how to engage with issues like immigration reform, like uh, the Voting Rights Act, like economic disparity, like the president talked about recently? And then what are the ways that uh, that the 60s civil rights movement, maybe that context isn't like this context. And so what are the, what are the challenges that that strategy would meet in this current context? Um, take one of those questions. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Right. <laughs> well, as um, the, first of all, you, you know, what a beautiful layout of of the issues that you made in your um, 
preface to your questions, I think that we are seeing uh, movements arise. I think, you know, what you were doing today on the mall is something that needs to be expanded to every state capital. You know, we need to plan for people to fast at the state capitals while others are here in D.C. I mean, I think that we really kind of know some of the ways to do things. And while the and the context being different, and I agree with you because the civil rights movement initially was dealing with the lack of rights on the books, you know, and we're not dealing with that now. So we're we're dealing with very different things. I was very impressed with the Occupy movement and as a part of the National Council of Elders, this organization you mentioned earlier that I'm one of the founding members of, you know, we went around and stood with uh, the occupiers in different places. Uh, I would love to see that movement in whatever incarnation uh, come back and the fact that it has put on uh, the record that we're talking about economic disparities. And I think this is very important. I'm very involved with the Dream Defenders uh, down right. in Florida. I'm glad we uh, that. Not yes. Mentioned, yes, and a number of my students are leaders in the Dream Defenders. And so um, they're working on the school-to-prison pipeline, and this is something that I think we need to be working on across the country because it is a huge issue. We certainly have to do something about the rollback on the Voting Rights Act and all. So the question is, how do we, as people of conscience, people of faith, how do we galvanize ourselves to take these issues on? Because I believe that we are in the majority. But for some reason, we are fragmented, uh, maybe because we have so many issues that we're taking on, how do we make an umbrella over all of these groups so that we become united in our effort to bring about the change that I believe the majority of Americans want in this country? So I I was going to say that, I mean, I, I feel, one, thank you for the work that you're doing, Lisa. And um, um one of the things that um, you said so much that I want to speak to, but um, one of the things that um, I was going to mention was the fact that um, I think that we have to understand that our struggle is not just our own. Um, and I feel like when you look back at the, at the civil rights movement, I think one of the ways that that story is undertold is by the diversity of perspectives that came, I feel like there's a way that that because because you, all many different organizations were black organizations, they just there's the, the the nuance gets lost, the diversity gets lost because everybody was black, right? But you know the, the brotherhood diversity of, within the diversity the diversity within yes. the diversity. The brotherhood of the sleeping carporters was not the same as the NAACP. It was not the same as SCLC. It was not the same as you know the list goes on. And you have the intersections with the peace movement and so on and so forth. And I I think that if you look at at 
you know, the Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina, for example, and you, you look at what was working well. It's, it's in part because uh, coalitions were built and people were, be, were able to or, organize together. And I think, you know, Dr. Barber is to thank for that. And so I, I feel like um, that's one of the ways that we've got to start thinking and struggling. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that, that's my one answer to those questions. <laughs> You know, um, I, I wish we had hours, and I, I have pages of questions we haven't gotten to, but where we have gone is so rich, and mostly it leaves wonderful questions in the room for us to hold and live with, and reflections uh, and nuance that's new. Um, I, feel like, I feel like you've just both said very eloquent things, you know, um, is there anything that you would still like to bring out, talk about, throw into the room? I would just like to say, could we ask the lady who I think with some difficulty... Can... Yes, would you like to ask your yes. question? I had a stroke a few years ago, but in 1970, I found a copy of Fellowship magazine, uh, the Fellowship of Reconciliation magazine. And that issue had the statement of purpose. And I was so excited because it said that not just men who I thought were pacifists, but I, a woman, could be a pacifist also, and I signed it. And I've uh, gone, I've been in other organizations, but the FOR is like deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And I figure when I get to heaven, I'll know what, really pacifism is. But, Lucas, um, I just wanted uh, you to uh, tell how you first became a pacifist. Mm. (laughs) That's sweet. Um, I... You know, I, um, that's, it's been a journey, you know, I, I mean, in some ways I feel like I'm still becoming, um, a pacifist, but I, but my, my, um, I can tell so many sort of early stories that moved me along that journey. Um, but I think that I reached this point where I, I, I felt like there was, when you ask who is it okay to kill or whose mother deserves to grieve, you know, the answer is no one and no mother. And, um, I think that I, I reached that conclusion early on, um, 
and I'm and I'm grateful. I I definitely I feel like my journey has to include the fact that I I began very much drawn to this tradition. I thought that I when Dr. King gave his sermon uh Beyond Vietnam or or at Riverside Church in 1967, you know, he talked about uh on one hand uh we're called to be the good Samaritan and on the other hand we're called to transform the Jericho Road and change the edifice that produces beggars. And um, when, I, uh, when I first read those words, I felt a call to do edifice-changing work in the same tradition that Dr. King was speaking of. And I think that's how I found myself on this journey. And... Um, you know, and I, I can tell you more stories later, but, uh, but yeah, but that's, that's the best answer I can give right now. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I hadn't plans to do this, but when I was preparing, I, I copied down this, these lines of Howard Thurman, Lucas, that you quoted, and I, I think I might just read them to end. It's about love. And I, I think, you know, that's, that's kind of where we started, and it's very hard work. Um, but you said the love that we must find is simply a realization of what is already true. As Howard Thurman writes in The Luminous Darkness, the religious experience as I have known it seems, seems to swing wide the door, not merely into life, but into lives. I am confident that my own call to the religious vocation cannot be separated from the slowly emerging disclosure that my religious experience makes it possible for me to experience myself as a human being and thus keep a very real psychological distance between myself and the hostilities of my environment. Through the years, it has driven me more and more to seek to make it as a normal part of my relations with men, the experiencing of them as human beings. When this happens, love has essential materials with which to work. And contrary to the general religious teaching, men would not need to stretch themselves out of shape in order to love. On the contrary, a man comes into possession of himself more completely when he is free to love another. I think in my work, it's become more and more important to me that spiritual life at its best is reality-based. I think that quote... uh, uh, describes that, and the two of you embody it. So I want to thank you so much for, for being with us tonight and sharing thank what you, you know Chris. and thank what you've you lived. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming.